Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. My normal partner in this affair, Elliot Cohen, is still on travel. Uh, We hope to have him back next week. But in the interim, I am happy to welcome back to the podcast a friend of Shield of the Republic, Willem Bowden, who is the executive director of the Clement Center for National Security at the LBJ School at the University of Texas. He's also associate professor of public affairs and editor-in-chief of the Texas National Security Review, author of Peacemaker, by biography of President Reagan that we went through with Will a, a couple of months back when it came out. Uh, and we're here to talk about uh, another historical controversy that we want Will to help us uh, help us settle. Welcome, uh, Will. Thank you, Eric. It's great to be back with you. And uh, of course, we miss Elliot, but uh, you and I uh, hopefully can um, fill the air with some meaningful content all the same. Yeah, well, you know, uh, you and I are the ones who are actually historians. Elliot's just a you know historian trapped in the body of a political scientist. So yes, so so we can we can settle some historical hash here. the The subject for today is uh, something that actually both uh, Will, you, and I have written about, which is a hardy perennial that seems to have resurfaced, which is the notion of the uh, October surprise in the nineteen eighty election, allegedly masterminded by Bill Casey, who was running the Reagan campaign and was also later the director of CIA under President Reagan. This idea uh, was first floated in the late 1980s by Gary Sick, who had been uh, the director for Iran affairs and the National Security Council under President Carter. And the idea was that in the 1980 election, while the hostage negotiations were going on to return the 44 American hostages to the United States. The head of the Reagan campaign, Bill Casey, had a secret meeting in Madrid, Spain in the summer of 1980, in which he passed messages to the Iranian leadership and to uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, suggesting that if the Iranians did not release the hostages before the uh, November 1980 election, they would get a better deal from from Ronald Reagan. And this allegedly uh, thwarted the Carter administration's efforts to negotiate uh, with the Iranians uh, and led to Ronald Reagan's landslide election in November of 1980. Now, the reason this hoary old chestnut has resurfaced is that in March, Peter Baker of the New York Times interviewed former Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Ben Barnes, who recounted a tale that Uh, suggested that uh, Barnes had accompanied uh, former governor of Texas, John Connolly, to meetings in the Middle East, where Connolly apparently, according to Barnes, uh, passed a similar message to what Gary Sick alleged Bill Casey had done, urging the Iranians not to release the hostages. Will, you and a colleague have written in War on the Rocks about this. I and Ruel Gurekt and and Ray Take, my occasional co-author on things Iranian uh, and author of The Last Shah, uh, have 
uh, written about this uh, in National Review. Tell our listeners what is wrong in your view with the Ben Barnes story. Yeah, thank you, Eric. And um, this was a, in some ways a, a difficult rebuttal to write because uh, you know Ben is uh, a part of the LBJ School and Foundation where uh, where where I teach, uh, and it's a you know someone I uh, certainly hold in high personal affection, right? He's a, a lovable guy and very much an icon in, in Texas politics. Uh, but I think this is just a uh, fundamentally untrue account, and it really unfairly besmirches uh, former Texas Governor John Connolly, uh, Bill Casey, and of course, Reg- Reagan himself. Uh, and especially because it's one of those conspiracies that seems to keep popping up uh, and and still in some ways kind of poisons our uh, political discourse today and contributes to you know, some of the divisions in our in our country today. It seemed uh, important as a matter of for the historical record uh, and to you know tamp down some of the um, uh, suspicions and hostility to to set try to set the record straight, or at least point out some of the serious holes in in Ben's account. And I'll just uh, walk through uh, the six main ones that we highlight quickly. And of course, um, uh, we can go in depth on any of these. And I you know think it'll be really important also to um, cover a little more from the Iranian side the really important insights that you and Ruel and, and Ray Ray come up with. But um, it, uh, my co- uh, co-author Joseph Ledford, who's currently a postdoctoral fellow at Johns Hopkins SICE and wrote a great dissertation on the Iran-Contra affair and U.S.-Iran relations in the 1980s. Uh, he and I point out that if you were going to believe Ben Barnes' tale that he and John Connolly were traveling through you know, six Middle Eastern countries in uh, in July of 1980, passed on this message, you need to believe six impossible things, right? And we are uh, deriving this, of course, from Alice in, in Wonderland, when the Queen tells Alice, you know, sometimes I've believed as many six, as six impossible things before breakfast, right? So first, you need to believe that at least five different Arab governments um, knew about this John Connolly scheme to persuade Iran to hold on to the hostages till after the election for four decades and never breathed a word about it, right? So here we are in 2023, and now this uh, you know aged Texas political figure is bringing this out and saying, yeah, we worked with five different Arab governments to promote this message, and I'm just now telling you about it. Uh, and yet we never would have heard any of this from those five governments before. Second, you would have to believe that even though those five Arab governments knew about it, not a single person in the American diplomatic or intelligence apparatus and system throughout the broader Middle East knew about it, right? Even though, of course, then as now we're very, uh, as a country, have a uh, you know very extensive posture in the region. Uh, you know, thousands of diplomats and intelligence officers and military liaison partners at a number of these key Arab uh, Arab, Arab capitals uh, who are constantly interacting with their uh, their counterparts in the local local governments. Surely they would have heard about such a crazy scheme like this to uh, uh, to distort the American election and prolong the hostage release. But but none of them had heard a single thing about it. Third, you'd have to believe that John Connolly, who's a lifelong uh, who at that time sorry, was a, was a Republican, uh, had actually been, you know, was angling for a position in the Reagan administration, that he would make these entreaties in the presence of Ben Barnes, who was a lifelong Democrat, who had a number of close friends in the Carter campaign and camp. And so that John Connolly would be so stupid as to, uh, you know, try to meddle with the um, Carter's reelection in this treasonous gesture with a loyal Democrat sitting there right next to him and assume that Ben would never say anything about this to his friends in, in the Carter camp. Um, uh, fourth, um, 
Ben is now claiming that they did this at the behest of Bill Casey, uh, you know, Reagan's campaign manager. But even in his own account in the New York Times story, uh, it's not until one month after he and John Connolly returned from their Middle East trip that they sit down with Bill Casey to supposedly debrief him on this. And this is in the crucible of a campaign when every day matters. And they're saying that this is of intense interest to Bill Casey. And yet he waits an entire month to, to hear from them about it. Um, Vith, you'd have to believe that the Islamic Republic of Iran, which was then as now a sworn enemy of the United States, and of course could have used this information to severely embarrass the Reagan administration, uh, never breathed a word out uh, about about it either. Um, and then, uh, and then sixth, the fact that this is just now coming out with the pot, you know the one little asterisk about what Ben Barnes may have said to Bill Brands a few few years ago, uh, you'd have to um, uh, you'd have to believe that the extensive congressional investigations done 20 or 30 years ago on this, which spent like a year uh, looking into uh, this story, interviewed thousands of people, produced tens of thousands of pages of documents. They'd never even come across before any inkling that it was Ben Barnes and John Connolly de delivering these these messages. So um, anyway, plenty of other holes in the story, but those are just the, the, the six biggest ones that we focus on. Yeah. And just to underscore the point, this is obviously something that when you were writing Peacemaker, you delved into and went through all the the major archival collections that would have been relevant here and have found no evidence of uh, of any of this let's i i do want to go to the the asterisk about uh, bill brands your colleague at ut and the father of our uh, mutual friend hal brands and uh, you know who's uh, collaborated with both of us on a variety of different projects if you go back and read uh, bill brands's a biography of Reagan, for which he interviewed uh, Ben Barnes and talked to Ben Barnes, the story is actually a little bit different. I mean, the story that he tells Bill Brands is that he and Governor Connolly traveled throughout the Middle East, in which Governor Connolly made the observation to his interlocutors in Israel and the Arab world that were the Iranians to release the hostages before the election in November, presumably in October, that it would upend uh, everybody's political calculations and be of enormous assistance to Carter. Now, that was not a, you know, uh, wildly novel observation for people to to make. In fact, the whole uh, term October surprise was actually coined about whether Carter would actually pull this uh, negotiated rabbit out of his hat before the election in order to seal his election victory. It was actually fears that that would happen that created this term of a potential October surprise. I mean, I can testify to the fact that John Anderson, who was a uh, independent presidential candidate, came to the Middle East to fill the time between the two conventions uh, and get some public attention to himself. Uh, I happen to know this because I was his control officer, the late Sam Lewis, the ambassador in Israel, uh, made me control officer for John Anderson. Uh, Sam, who's a fairly intimidating person, uh, also told me that he didn't want any leaks coming out of this, that somehow the embassy had dissed, you know, John Anderson. But he also didn't want anything coming out of, of this suggesting that the embassy had done a whole lot to help John Anderson either. <laughs> yeah. so it was, uh, for someone who had joined the Foreign Service like seven months before, uh, this was a little bit of a, a tall order for a first tour officer. But, uh, you know, Anderson actually excluded the embassy from his meetings, so we have no idea what he said. But if he were to have said to his inter Israeli interlocutors, 
that if you know Carter did this, it would change and scramble the political calculations. Would I be surprised? Absolutely not, because it's a very common observation. But the point is that that is a different story um, than uh, Ben Barnes told to Peter Baker more recently. It did not include the passing of any messages to the Iranians explicitly. So why, how does Ben Barnes explain that he's only remembering this now? Yeah, and that that is one of the several troubling questions about this. And I will just one other difference between his 2015 account and, and the one more recently to Peter Baker also is in uh, in Bill Brand's 2015 book, the first time that Ben Barnes had brought up any connection with this, although, as you said, it was you know not an explicit request to delay the hostage release. Uh, then he also says, uh, we passed this message through Israel, whereas now in the New York Times one, he's saying, OK, we didn't. We didn't with Israel also. So so again, another way that he's, he's changing the story somewhat. You know, I have not uh, talked to Ben since since this came out, so I honestly don't know uh, why uh, you know why why now he's he's bringing this up uh, or how and why this particular story got, got in his head. Uh, you know, he's known as a colorful personality who certainly has been a teller of tall tales and in other contexts. Um, he says that he you know as he's in his you know more aged years that he wants to you know kind of come clean and set, set the record straight, but. Um, uh, it, it's, you know, I don't want to speculate on motives there. I'll just say that when we weigh what he is now claiming against the overwhelming weight of the historical evidence, it just, it just doesn't add up. Well, I, I guess what I, I would say is he said to Peter Baker that part of the reason for this is he was afraid to, you know, uh, release this earlier, uh, because he, he was afraid he would have been accused by his democratic colleagues of, treachery and uh, having supported Reagan for president, et cetera, although he was on the record as supporting Carter. I mean, I find that a kind of hard to credit motive in the sense that given the investment that so many people have had in, and we'll get to this in a moment, in this theory that was first propounded by Gary Sick in the late 1980s, uh, you know, if he'd come forward immediately, for instance, after Gary Sick had written about this in 1988, he would have been hailed as a truth teller and a, you know, whistleblower, et cetera. So I, I, it's, you know, even on the surface, the story doesn't seem to parse. Yeah. Yeah. And a, and a couple of other points to reinforce that. I mean, uh, other windows when he could have come forward sooner would have been, you know, the 1991 congressional investigations, right? When there's a natural point to, okay, I'm being asked about this and now I will really tell you what, what happened. Nothing. Right. Or uh, 1993, when John Connolly dies, you know, maybe you, could have made the case. Well, Ben Barnes wanted to didn't want to besmirch Connolly while he's alive, but now that he's dead, he can come out and tell the truth. And you're right. Uh, given how this is such a article of faith among so many Carter alums and uh, Car Carter partisans, um, he you know would have been hailed as a hero. And, and in some ways, he has been now in some of those circles. Right. Hence this you know New York New Republic article. will I know we'll, we'll be discussing uh, or. Um, you know, the Twitter sphere blew up about this or since then to follow on New York Times stories, treating what he said as as gospel, as gospel truth. Uh, so the whole, you know, I, I don't I don't buy that rationale for why he why he waited so long. Yeah. I mean, Peter Baker in his original article is actually fairly careful to say, you know, this is Barnes recollection. There's no substantive evidence of this. Conveniently for Barnes, the you know, two witnesses who could dispositively speak to this. Bill Casey and John Connolly are both deceased. Yeah. Although I would point out, and Baker reported this, that John Connolly's son, who was with his 
father for his father's meeting with President Reagan, where, you know, given the importance of all this, if it were that serious and given Connolly's desire to curry favor with Reagan for possible appointment as Secretary of State or Defense, which is why he was going on this Middle East trip to begin with, burnishing his credentials for that, you know, John Connolly's son says never came up in the meetings. Yeah, yeah. The one live witness we have, you know, doesn't support the story at all. Yeah, exactly. And then if you look at the only other documented facts that the, you know, Barnes presents or are presented in the Peter Baker story are, yes, John Connolly and Ben Barnes did travel to these Middle Eastern countries in July, right? You know, that's, that's documented. There's state, there's State Department cable, cables on that. Uh, and yes, Nancy Reagan did phone Connolly from the Reagan ranch saying, hey, uh, you know, my husband, Ron Reagan, wants to talk to you about strategy meetings, right? Uh, so if those are the only two facts you have, and then you've got this wild conspiracy that Ben Barnes is, is spinning, I can see if you want to believe that, you'd grab onto those two. But I think those two facts are very easily explained otherwise. So why does John Connolly go on this extensive trip to the Middle East? Well, he was auditioning to be Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense in a hoped-for Reagan administration. And a few months earlier, when Connolly had still been a presidential candidate, He'd given a uh, widely criticized big speech on Middle East policy, uh, where he somehow managed to alienate Israel supporters with a uh, some very, you know strong skepticism towards U.S. support for Israel, while also upsetting all the Arab governments in the region by calling for a massive increase in the American military presence. And so he had really stepped on it, right? And he's trying to rehabilitate his reputation as a Middle East expert uh, as part of auditioning for a cabinet position in the Reagan administration. So that makes perfect sense why he would do a trip like that. Then why is Nancy Reagan phoning and asking him uh, to help out with campaign strategy because Reagan knew it was going to be a tight race and he wanted to win. And he knew that Texas was going to be a real key swing state, right? Texas had gone for Carter in 76. John Connolly's, you know, the multi-term former governor of Texas. He knows Texas well. He's got a great fundraising network there. Reagan is trying desperately to unify a fractured and divided Republican Party after a nasty primary. Of course, they're going to be asking John Connolly for help with campaign strategy. Uh, but that's a very, very different thing altogether than this wild fabrication or conspiracy theory that the Reagans are reaching out, asking him to carry this, this secret message to them about delaying the hostage release. And then, of course, there's the whole question of even if some kind of message had been passed to the Iranians, what kind of interest would they have had in actually, uh, you know, assisting Ronald Reagan? And there doesn't seem to be any evidence based on, you know, the researches of someone like Ray Takei, who has you know, written a uh, excellent book on the Shah's fall and revolution, who's working, by the way, on a book on the Carter administration's uh, policy towards Iran, in, in which will be somewhat revisionist in the sense that Ray is much more sympathetic to the Carter administration than others have been with regard to policy towards uh, Iran. I'm not yet 100% persuaded by Ray's argument, but then again, I haven't seen the manuscript yet, so I'll reserve judgment on that. But as Ray points out, there's absolutely no evidence anywhere that from the Iranian side, there would have been any receptivity to this kind of offer on the part of Reagan, that um, America was the great Satan. There was no distinction in their mind between Carter and, and Reagan, and they didn't need any offer from Reagan to want to exact vengeance on Carter, who they believed had organized a, an effort to overthrow them early in, in the revolution. 
which, you know, is that is a matter of still debate among historians, whether there was that effort or not. But they had plenty of reason uh, to despise Carter and want to hurt him politically without any intercession by folks from the Reagan campaign. And Eric, if I can just uh, interject on that, because I'd like you to elaborate on that uh, point, which is really important here. uh, And here's where I'm, uh, you know, turning, you know, I'm being the interviewer a little bit, I suppose. But what I really like about your dispatch article is there is a tendency among, you know, some, especially on the left, who are very critical of U.S. Iran policy over the years, to assume this kind of American omnipotence that we can just dictate these outcomes in Iran. And this is partly why, as you point out in the article, they way over-determined the American role in the 1953 coup, which is actually largely an internal Iranian story about disgruntled Iranians overthrowing uh, Mossadegh. Including the clerics. Including the clerics, yeah. Yeah. And then similarly, in this latest crazy conspiracy theory about the October surprise, as you guys rightly point out in your dispatch article, there's this assumption of American omnipotence to be able to dictate to the Iranians, uh, you know, you will hold the hostages thus thus long and not and not any longer because of American political machinations. When, as you guys point out, look, this is this is an Iranian story uh, and they were making up their own mind and what their what their agenda was. I think those are just very important points you made. It's absolutely right. The, The Iranians, as I said, had their own you know, uh, bill of particulars about about Carter, even though in the United States he was regarded as having been very wishy-washy and having undercut the, the Shah. That's not how the revolutionaries around uh, Khomeini saw it. So, which brings us to the New Republic article that you mentioned uh, a minute ago. This was uh, appeared about a month after the um, Ben Barnes interview with Peter Baker in the New York Times uh, under the headline, It's All But Settled close quote, by Jonathan Alter, Kai Bird, Gary Sick, the originator of the October Surprise allegation back in 1988, and Stu Eisenstadt, a former senior official in the Carter administration, the cabinet secretary, I believe then, and a very distinguished American public servant. I've worked uh, with Stu extensively. I have extremely high regard uh, for him. But this article, I have to say, is terribly unconvincing. It tries to make the case that this issue is now settled and resolved, although they admit that they have no documentary evidence for any of the allegations they make and frequently resort to accounts suggesting here's what likely happened as opposed to here's what actually happened because they don't have any evidence. So let's start with you know, where they start. They start with a, a an interview with Stuart Spencer, who basically says, yeah, well, Casey, he was capable of anything. Uh, speaking as a historian, what, you know, what kind of evidence is that for a far-ranging charge like this? Yeah, it's, it's no evidence whatsoever. I mean, uh, and, and again, as you and I have discussed before, uh, Bill Casey was very conniving, right? And he was guilty of other misdeeds. I think it's you know overwhelmingly clear he did uh, engineer stealing Carf- Carter's debate briefing book. He was later up to his eyeballs in Iran Contra, right? So, uh, but it's just on this particular case, they present no concrete evidence whatsoever. And there's this, I think, chasm between their assertions of authority, you know, like their first paragraph say, there's now enough evidence to say definitively that... Uh, um, and then they go into laying out that you know Reagan and, and Casey tried to manipulate the uh, the hostage release, but then they just don't present any of that evidence. I mean, it is revealing not to be too self-referential, but this New Republic uh, article came out on May third. Um, 
our the Ledford and Inboden article refuting this had come out almost a month earlier on April 10th. Your article with Ray and Ruel came out in the dispatch on April 15th. So these are three weeks. Our articles had been out three or four weeks before this one comes out. It's revealing that they don't even reference ours. And, and again, this is not a plea for clicks by any means, but just if you're going to be offering a supposedly definitive account like they are here, you at least need to acknowledge the uh, strong skepticism and I think pretty strong evidence that others had, had, had brought up. So that in of itself is, is revealing. And, yeah, and you need to be able to address the questions that, you know, the five of us collectively in the two yeah. articles raise about about this uh, story, it, particularly because they do pin their whole story on Ben Barnes. That's, you know, for them, that's the yeah. final nail in the coffin. Yeah. They, they talk about, uh, you know, Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed, who was uh, chief of uh, protocol under President Reagan and had been, I guess, at uh, one point ambassador to Morocco as well. They quote him as saying uh, he was particularly involved in in this effort to monitor that Bill Casey had created. And and again, I mean, I have no doubt that Bill Casey was carefully monitoring this situation because it had huge political implications for Reagan. Reed, they quote as saying in a letter to his, uh, I guess, family that he had devoted a chunk of his life to you know monitoring this and making sure this didn't happen. But is that evidence for? Anything in particular, you know, it, it seems to me to be not specific at all with regard to the actual allegation, but rather a generalized sense of, you know, thank God that didn't happen. Yeah, no. And, and again, I, I will, you know, can strongly reinforce that from my own uh, research. I mean, first, uh, in the 1980 campaign, where one of the big issues is America's uh, appearance of weakness on the global stage because of the hostage crisis and uh, public frustrations with how, you know, Carter uh, seemed to be managing or mismanaging it. And yet a general realization that if the hostages were released, of course, it'll be a boost to Carter, just as if the economy started doing better, it would have been a, bo- a boost to, to Carter. Or if the Soviets would have withdrawn from Afghanistan, it would have been a boost to Carter. That's just common sense. And so it would have actually been political malpractice for Reagan's campaign to not be monitoring this closely, right? I mean, it's a huge factor for them. And this is where I will speak personally from having spent weeks reading through almost every page of the Reagan campaign records at the Hoover Institution archives, as did my co-author, Joseph Ledford. And we can say, you know, two things come out of that. First, the Reagan campaign absolutely was monitoring carefully the plight of the hostages and the question of if they're going to be released or not, because they they would have been irresponsible not to. And two, we did not find a single sentence, let alone a single page, indicating any effort whatsoever to try to delay the release of the hostages. And that's what the, the crux of the issue is here. And that's we don't see any of that evidence in this New Republic article, right? I mean, um, sure, Stu Spencer, the campaign manager, is four decades later saying, Yes, Casey was obsessed with the the hostages. Well, of course, we knew that at the time. You know, Jim Baker, the great you know Jim Baker, who was also uh, uh, involved involved with the campaign, kind of chuckles and says, "Yeah, Bill Casey sure was a conniver." Well, everyone knew that, but that is not evidence at all of trying to persuade Iran not to release the hostages. Some of the evidence that they present, in some ways, actually undercuts their case. So one of one of the pieces of evidence that they uh, adduce is a meeting between President Carter and Yasser Arafat uh, in the 1990s, in which Arafat says, oh, I need to tell you something. You know, in 1980, I was approached, you know, to pass a message to the Iranians. 
uh, and I was I would get some arms if I did that, and I turned it down, which suggests no message actually got passed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If that it, meeting it, even took place at all, true. And Arafat's a you know a, a well known prevaricator and liar, and and so you know why you know you would put any trust in in you know that you know long after the fact you know, revelation is, or alleged revelation is beyond me. But and, and, and similarly, another part, again, from the New Republic article, which is self-refuting, if you give it a close read, going back is concerning this alleged uh, July 1980 Madrid meeting between, you know, uh, Reagan's campaign manager, Bill Casey, and Ayatollah, it was a Karubi, uh, you know, a representative of the uh, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. And this is where the allegation is that Casey sneaks into Madrid and meets with uh, Karubi and, you know, makes this plea, don't release the hostages to off the election, right? But again, no evidence that Casey was actually there. And they point out that there is that uh, stray kind of third-hand document from the Bush 41 administration of a White House counsel saying, I heard from someone over at state that there was some cable saying that Casey had been, had been in Madrid. But Eric, you were an FSO for decades, you know, Foreign Service Officer State Department. You know how State Department cables work. State Department cables don't just go missing, right? I mean, they are, when they are sent from a post to main state, there are many, many copies that go to lots of, of people. And the fact that even after a federal judge ordered the State Department to look for and find this cable, the New Republic article concedes this, and it's never been found, I think it's because the thing just never existed, right? There never was a cable from Embassy Madrid saying Bill Casey was, was here, here in town. And there would have been abundant chances for someone at state to come forward with, with such a cable any time over the last several, several decades. So again, that was another one that was just, uh, when, you, when you read more carefully in this, it, it, it is uh, a very thin article. Yeah, I had exactly the same uh, response on reading this uh, will as you did, which is it, it is inconceivable that in uh, the modern era, a, a telegram could com just completely go missing from the record, in part because it's all digitized and, you know, as you say, distributed all over the place. And even when distribution mistakes are made, uh, you know, not all the copies of the cables end up being completely collected back by the operation center or, or wherever they, you know, uh, originated. So uh, the, the idea that, that this thing, you know, could somehow be expurgated from the record, particularly because it was going on in the Bush 41 administration, not Reagan. And, you know, yeah. so it's not as if, you know, there would have been a lot of effort to actually protect Reagan. I mean, having gone through the Bush Reagan presidential transition, which was, you know, famously described as a hostile takeover by Jim Baker. Um, you know, there was no love lost between the two teams. So the, the idea that oh, just yeah. two Republican administrations, therefore, you know, the, the, you know, Bush 41 would have covered for Reagan. And it's just not credible to me. Yeah. And, and there was particularly no love lost between the Bush 41 camp and Bill Casey. Of course, he was dead by then. Right. But I mean, they they would have no incentive whatsoever to to protect him. Uh, so with this this crazy alleged cover up. All right. So you and I both agree that there's uh, less here than meets the eye. And it certainly should not be treated as, quote, all but settled. It's, you know, uh, to the degree that this theory has any standing at all, it ought to be as a theory and comes pretty close to 
conspiracy theory because some people say, well, the fact that you can't find any documentary evidence just shows that they went and cleaned up all the record behind, which is usually the kind of thinking you get associated with these kinds of uh, conspiracies. Now, there have been, however, real efforts to intercede in in elections, uh, both uh, recent and a more distant past. And I thought it'd be worth maybe comparing this episode to to two of those. One was the 1968 presidential election when President Lyndon Johnson was attempting to launch negotiations with North Vietnam uh, in an effort to help uh, Hubert Humphrey's campaign running well behind Nixon, you know, catch catch up to the Nixon campaign and almost did. Uh, in the end of the day, the election turned out to be quite close. We know because it's on tape, Lyndon Johnson at one point uh, before the 1968 election uh, called in in the fall, uh, Richard Nixon, and said, I've, I've caught your campaign with, uh, with its hand in the cookie jar. And I, you need to tell John Mitchell, I know what he's doing and he needs to knock it off. And what, to what, what he was referring to was outreach by uh, Anna Chenault the Chinese-born wife of uh, General Claire Chenault of Flying Tiger fame during World War II. And she had allegedly, uh, she herself claimed to be acting on behalf of the Nixon campaign as an agent of the campaign, contacted the South Vietnamese ambassador in Washington and told him to to tell the uh, South Vietnamese government, General uh, Chu, the president of uh, South Vietnam, don't make a deal before the election because you'll get a better deal from Nixon. Of course, the uh, FBI had been listening in on um, the South Vietnamese ambassador's phone calls, and so they had this on on tape. Nixon, of course, you know, expressed no knowledge of this, you know, and. Um, said he would make, told Johnson that he would make sure nothing untoward was going on on behalf of his campaign and and left. What do you make of that as, as a historian and how does it compare to this other case? Yeah. So, uh, and I first got to say, I have not looked uh, very extensively firsthand into the 68 case in say the way that I did look very much firsthand to this ni- 1980 question. So I can't be dispositive on this. Um, I do recall that John Farrell's uh, biography of Nixon from a few years ago, I thought made a pretty persuasive case that this sort of skullduggery was, was going on. The Anna Chenault was doing this at least, you know, implicitly at the behest of uh, the Nixon camp and maybe even Nixon himself, which again, if, if true is, you know, uh, horrendous, right? It's deeply troubling and is, you know, very much betraying, uh, betraying, the, betraying the national interest. Um, an advanced plug for a book I've not read yet, but it isn't out, but um, the historian Luke Nichter has a forthcoming book on the 1968 elections called 1968, the year that broke politics, uh, the year that broke politics, because these things are so contentious, especially in the wake of RFK's assassination and Martin Luther King's assassination. Uh, and I, I understand, I haven't read it yet, that Luke raises a few questions questions about the received wisdom on this. And so I, until I read the book, I'm not going to render any, any judgments, but um, there certainly seems to be uh, at a minimum more there on this 68 allegation than there is on the 1981. So. Yeah. I mean, there, there's the indisputable fact that she reached out to the South Vietnamese yeah. now at, at whose direction and how much knowledge Nixon had. That's, I think. Yeah. Open. And whether, it, and whether it ended up making it would have made a difference. a difference or not. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, this was going on literally with matter of days, you know, between uh, between this time and the, the time of, of the election. Uh, interestingly, my uh, you know colleague Ken Hughes at the Miller Center has looked into this and, and looked looked into both the, you know, the Johnson tapes and the Nixon tapes. And he makes a very it's circumstantial, but a very powerful case that, you know, a lot of things that otherwise seem inexplicable about Watergate, you know, some of the antics of the White House uh, plumbers, and I, you want to give a un, you know, unsolicited plug to um, the White House plumbers now appearing on HBO Max. I've seen the first two episodes. It's uh, David Mandel is the uh, showrunner who ran the last three seasons of Veep. I mean, there's some liberties taken here, but by and large, this is pretty accurate from what I know of the Watergate record. Um, but, but some of these things that were really kind of inexplicable about why would the Nixon people be, uh, you know, burglarizing Les Gelb's office in the Brookings Institution, for God's sakes. Part of it seems to have been driven, Ken argues, by Nixon's fear that uh, these transcripts of these Anna Chenault phone conversations uh, had somehow, you know, gotten loose from inside the administration and, and various folks, Dan Ellsberg, uh, Les Gelb, who'd been associated with the Pentagon Papers project, both of them had been, may have had access to this information and would bring it out before the 72 election and jeopardize Nixon's uh, re-election. It's a kind of interesting counterpoise because, as you say, unlike the so-called October surprise of 1980, there is some evidence here for this may have had larger repercussions later on, may have kind of undone Nixon later on, if Ken Hughes is right about, about all this. But it also, interestingly, was not about sending a message to an adversary, which is what uh, is alleged in the 1980 case, but sending evidence to an ally uh, who was, uh, you know, had some skin in the game, you know, and, and therefore... You could imagine that a message to the South Vietnamese government saying, hold out, you know, Johnson's about to sell you out, but Nixon will give you a better deal. Uh, of course, the ultimate irony there is that in 1972 and into the spring of 1973, the Nixon administration puts excruciating pressure on Chu to accept a deal he doesn't want to accept. And Christmas bombing of 1972 is not just aimed at the North, it's aimed at also persuading President Chu, he should take this deal because the you know a future Nixon administration will support South Vietnam with with air power, which tragically did not happen in 1975. Yeah, you're right. That's one of the many ironies in that case. Yeah. So let's let's turn to another case where uh, there was some skullduggery, which is more recent and still has some contemporary resonance, which is the 2016 election campaign. Now you know President. Trump, former President Trump, likes to say that, you know, the Mueller report totally exonerated him of any charge of collusion. Now, first of all, there is no criminal statute that criminalizes collusion. There are various conspiracy statutes. But the Mueller report uh, does document a pattern of contacts between uh, the uh, various Russian actors or actors purporting to uh, have connections to Moscow and the Putin regime. 
uh, and the Trump campaign. Uh, you and I were involved in in the you know Romney campaign. I don't remember any kinds of contacts like that going on in 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 2012. Yeah, not at all. And the you know Senate Intelligence Committee also has done an extensive report that goes through much of the same material as Mueller did. And of course, Mueller actually indicted Russians for interference in the 2016 election. Folks who worked for the internet so-called Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg, working for Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's become much more um, a big, bigger public figure now, given the Russian-Ukraine war. How does that compare to this episode we've been talking about, Will, in your view? Yeah. Well, and of course, the other big factor is uh, uh, we know, you know, I think the evidence is uh, overwhelming that the Russian government was interfering in the uh, U.S. election and very much on the side of then candidate and later later President Trump, too. So and in some ways, it's a reminder of just being very careful uh, with our facts and accusations, because in the case of the 1981, where I think the the accusations are very wild and the facts just don't back it up at all, um, whereas in, in 2016, as you're as you're pointing out, the facts I think are overwhelming that there was Russian interference, and there you know certainly were some uh, uh, you know troubling uh, outreach and contacts between uh, figures associated with with Trump, which you know have been very uh, clearly documented, uh, and, and and the Russian government and Russian Russian interests, right? Um, uh, you know, going on up to campaign manager Paul Paul Manafort, um, but uh, when you look at uh, something much more contrived, such to say, the Steele dossier and how that's uh, that is you know discredited so much of the rest. It's again, it's just a good reminder on all sides. Um, let's be very careful with our facts, and when there is a solid, irrefutable fact, you know, take that and run with it. But if they if there aren't, and if we're going to be you know following after you know conjecture and conspiracy theory, that can discredit the whole enterprise, and frankly, allow some. Uh, genuinely bad behavior to to be got away with because the other side can say, oh, you know, they fabricated this or that about the Steele dossier and uh, uh, and then avoid what is some, you know, otherwise I think some, you know, very worrisome malfeasance. Right. So, I mean, this is, as you point out, why people have to be very careful and examine uh, any kind of document, you know, first of all, to look for documentary evidence and to, you know, to, you know, interrogate the evidence, you know, very, very Carefully, as you point out, there are a number of things about the Steele dossier that should have set off some alarm bells about, you know, whether it was a reliable uh, source for a variety of reasons. On the other hand, there does seem to have been at least some, you know, direct kind of consequences, in, including for the kind of run up to the uh, Russo-Ukrainian war that, it, you know, looked even more troubling in retrospect than they did at the time. I, I, you mentioned, you know, Paul Manafort, uh, who was convicted and pardoned uh, for, by President Trump for some of these activities, but they included sharing internal campaign polling with a, a Russian colleague of Manafort's who uh, is believed to have been a, uh, a asset of uh, Russian intelligence and a very troubling uh, effort that both of us know a little bit about from sources, you know, who were among the Republican delegates to the convention to change the platform with regard to aid to Ukraine. That to me seems in retrospect, way more troubling than anything that's been alleged in this October surprise uh, allegation. 
Yeah, no, I, w- I would add to that even, you know, then candidate Trump himself publicly calling at that press conference has, you know, urging the Russians to hack into Hillary's emails, right? I mean, um, uh, you know, it doesn't get any more brazen than that. And, you know, he, he did it in his devious way of later, you know, wanting to claim that he was only kidding or, or half kidding. But, um, you know, the um, Mueller report also documents that it was, you know, within a few hours of that, that the Russian hacking uh, efforts did did increase, right? So, uh, yeah, so that that's one where, you know, there, there's a... Uh, you know, a fact, a fact uh, in in plain sight. Um, in, in ways that they're just Reagan never did anything remotely comparable to that in 1980. So, well, I wonder if, as a historian, you would want to draw any conclusions about, you know, how foreign policy plays in election campaigns from these three cases. I mean, obviously there are only three cases, you know, long history of U.S. presidential elections, but typically we're told, you know, as historians and by political scientists that, you know, foreign affairs really doesn't matter in presidential campaigns. No one really pays attention. It's, it's usually kitchen table economic issues that are the ones that are, are, are dominant. And I'm not disputing that. I mean, that, that, you know, it seems the evidence is pretty overwhelming that, American voters are, you know, in some level are voting about economic conditions or their perceived economic situation personally. It's a little bit of debate among political scientists about whether it's, you know, the personal or whether it's the larger sociotropic judgments that they're making. But but that seems pretty, pretty clear. But, you know, as a historian, I've got to say, you know, I just look at a lot of these election campaigns and, you know, foreign policy seems to be lurking in there somewhere. American voters do seem to make some kinds of judgments about candidates based on their sense of where these candidates are on foreign policies. How do these three cases, you know, play into your thinking as a historian about this larger subject? Yeah, uh, so I I will say I do generally embrace the uh, conventional view that foreign policy is rarely a determinative factor in presidential elections. Right? Um, there's a few exceptions, uh, not to be too wonky, but 1916, you know, Wilson running, he kept us out of the war before World War One. Right? Um, 1968, you know, Vietnam is a pretty pretty big one there. Although that's a funny one because. You know, neither Humphrey nor Nixon was promising to get us out of the war entirely, right? I mean, uh, you know, Nixon, you know, saying he eventually has a plan too, but it's a big issue. The 1981, somewhat, you know, as we've been talking about with uh, both the Iran hostage crisis, but also just uh, concerns over Carter's management of the Cold War in general. More recently for you and me, maybe 2004, you know, Bush v. Kerry, uh, still the wake of 9-11, the Iraq War, things like that. But um but otherwise, no, I think the way foreign policy generally functions in elections is a little bit of a proxy for voters on the general competence of a candidate. Like, is this somebody that we trust with their finger on the button? Is it someone we trust to represent the United States on the global stage? Um, the commander in chief test is what exactly the commander in chief test. It's more, yeah, more of those more of those intangibles rather than uh what kind of level of support does the candidate want to provide for Ukraine right now, or or uh, or, or some, something like that? So I uh, I think it's usually the pocketbook issues that do matter a lot more to the average voters. But foreign policy is there is one of those more abstract ones. Yeah. Well, Will, I want to thank you for helping shed some light on these historical controversies. They're they're kind of fun and interesting. Um, they do have I think some some lessons to uh, tell us about uh, how open our political system is and therefore the degree to which others can actually 
you know, intervene and, and uh, fool around in it if we're not uh, careful, if we don't watch uh, things. But also cautionary tale in, you know, being a careful reader, uh, as you point out. So thank you very much for joining us on Shield of the Republic today. Thanks. It's been a great discussion as always, Eric. Honor to be with you. And that's all we have for today for Shield of the Republic. Please drop us a line at shieldofthereperepublic at gmail.com. Uh, put a review of the podcast if you enjoyed it on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And we'll be back next week when Elliot Cohen will return. <laughs>